So we're going to look tonight at Isaiah 45. And beloved, this is a really great text of Scripture. And I know I say that probably every week. But it's because the Word of God is great. I mean, that's why I say it. And so we're going to look tonight more intently at this Persian king, Cyrus, and the way that God uses him and the words that God speaks of him um, and how they are really um, part of the big picture. Okay, so let's read uh, Isaiah 45. We'll read verses 1 through 8. And then we'll uh, pray and we'll, we'll feast on this text tonight. This is the Word of God. Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before Him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before Him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze, and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above. And let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Let's pray. Father, I am in full accord with my brother John that you are God in control. You are the only sovereign God. And you have mastery over everything so that you might bring to pass your eternal plan for the heavens and the earth. God, everything that you do is right and it is good and it is just because you are. Everything that you do tends to the praise of your glory because your glory is supreme. Lord, everything that you do tends to the good of your people because the redemption and the sanctification and the ultimate glorification of your people brings you great glory. Lord, you are matchless in every way. And so as we look at this text tonight and as we, as we, as you give us, Father, a, a glimpse into the mind of God. We, we know we see through a shadow dimly, Lord. We, we can't understand in full anything about you. But we're grateful, Father, for what you give us. And so I pray that, Father, you'll draw our hearts out to you tonight. I pray that these words that we read tonight would give us um, a deepening in our faith. 
Father, a deepening in our love for you and a confidence in you that is not, cannot be shaken. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would empty me of myself, of any reliance upon anything in me, and that, Lord, you would make me an instrument in your hands um, for the praise of your glory, and that you would use this time to edify your saints here. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So if you take a look at your handout real quick, I want you to notice something that I've done, and, and I'll continue to do this from here on out. If you look sort of at the, at the end of you know, one of the sections, you know, probably the second section is the first place that this occurs. But I put the scripture references that I'm going to reference when I'm you know, teaching or whatever, so that if you're taking notes, you can just write like Ezra or Daniel, and then you'll have you know, the reference right up there, so it's easier for you to... Okay, so I just figured it would be helpful. So that, you know, I don't have Mel coming up at the end going, hey, what did you say? Because I can't remember lots of times, you know. So anyways, that's, I figured it would help you, help me. So anyways, tonight again, like I said, we're going to look more intently at this whole concept of a Persian king, of a, of a pagan king, Cyrus, um, being used in an appointed role for God's eternal plan for the world, right? And so I kind of want us to think about it like this. You may have heard the expression that's used many times of like... Uh, you know, CEOs of companies or maybe generals in a battle that, that, you know, that guy's playing the long game. And what that means is, you know, when we talk about that is, is that each action or decision that they take in the moment has greater implications than just the moment, right? That there's something that's, that's bigger in picture. There's something bigger that's taking place of greater importance that it's tending towards, right? And, and, and so many times, like I said, it refers to like military or corporate strategies that what generals or CEOs do and, and, and they do these things, whatever they do in the moment. And, and though it might not be immediately identifiable in the moment, there is a greater cause that exists. Right. That's why, you know, there are strategic plans and then there are, you know, tactical plans. Tactical plans tend towards strategic plans. Right. So that's the idea here. So this section of scripture shows God's long game, if you will. And I don't mean it in the pejorated way that your generation does. Because as soon as I said that, I knew some of you guys raised your eyebrow. You know what I'm talking about. All right, so I want you to put yourself in the place, for instance, of Isaiah slash Judah here, okay? I want you to put yourself in their position as they are considering these words in the book of Isaiah describing God's choice of Cyrus. You know, who God earlier refers to as my shepherd and now is called his anointed right it would have been i think shocking and it would have provoked several questions right if you're just the average jew in exile you hear this about cyrus right this you know the next conquering king on the stage of world history and you're going to have some questions right how could a pagan king serve the eternal purposes of god right you're going to ask yourself, how could a pagan king accomplish the rescue of the Jewish exiles? Why would he want to? What would be the purpose in that? How could a, a pagan king fulfill God's promises to rescue and to save his people? And why would the God of Israel call a pagan king his anointed one? It just wouldn't make sense, right? And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. That's what we're going to consider tonight. That all the kings and the kingdoms that exist throughout history are raised up and brought low by God himself. That their conquests, whatever conquests they may achieve, are given them by God. That somehow in the midst of all of that, the Lord's own people and their future is always 
part of God's purpose and that the Lord in every instance is working out His sovereign plan for His glory in the world. What we need to get grasp, I mean, hopefully we know this, but I'll remind you of something that we ought to know. We need to realize that Yahweh's purposes, okay, if we're just, if we're just honest, His purposes are always on a longer scale and on a wider canvas and filled with a more complex wisdom than mere human beings can grasp, right? That's why He's got to reveal it to us, right? And because God is righteous, everything that He does, by definition, is right and it's good. Okay, so you with me so far? That wasn't very encouraging. Okay, that's better. Thank you. So let's look at this text. And let's start with this oracle regarding, regarding Cyrus. And we'll, just, we'll look again at these first three verses of chapter 45. Look at them with me. He says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you. And level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Now there's a lot said here. There's a lot for us to consider. So let's start by first of all considering the big picture, okay? When Cyrus came to the world stage, he was like a rock star. Okay, he was. He was like a rock star. And the reason that he was was because of his rapid rise from relative obscurity in this distant kingdom called Anshan to his eventual place as the world power. Okay? And so his ascent was very swift. It was very impressive. Okay? When he, be- when he came to the throne in Anshan in 559 BC, Persia wasn't yet Persia, but, but Anshan was subservient to media. Okay? By 549 B.C., Cyrus had become powerful enough to overthrow and kill the Median king, a dude named Astyges, and then he founded the Persian Empire. Not content with that, in 547 B.C., he moved west and he conquered King Croesus of Lydia, which is now present-day Turkey. And then he, he, he turned back east to extend his rule into northwest India. So this guy was on the move continually, all right? By 540... He had brought most of the former Babylonian Empire under his rule. And then in 539, he conquered Babylon itself. And during that entire run, he never lost a battle. Okay? And so for all of his exploits, this was the title that he was given. This is what the nations that conquered him called him. They called him Cyrus the Great, Beloved of the Gods. But here in Isaiah, we see the real truth, right? Here in Isaiah, we get the real truth. The reason for Cyrus's great power and success was not the gods. It was the Lord himself, right? First of all, his success was because of God's specific choice of him as his anointed. Again, for the Jews to hear Cyrus referred to in this way would have been off-putting to say the least. And the reason why is this. That was a title that was reserved for priests, for prophets, and for the Davidic kings. And we know ultimately it is the title, right, of the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it would have been jarring for them to think that Cyrus had been specifically chosen by God, favored by God, and empowered to carry out the purposes of God. But that is exactly the case. That's exactly the case. God's word comes to Cyrus as the chosen one of God, a pagan, right? 
demonstrated that God's power is not just restricted to the nation of Israel or His people or in any, any age. God's power is overall. Overall. And so, God's word comes to Cyrus as the chosen one of God to be the instrument that will carry out God's sovereign plan. Moreover, notice this. The Lord speaks of Cyrus as being the one whose right hand I have grasped. I want you to think about that. What do you think that means? His right hand I have grasped. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, he's taking his hand to lead him. Like he leads him like you would lead a little child. Right? That's the idea here. It speaks of this close, close association and that God had fitted him or endowed him for a specific task. In this case, it was the repatriation of the Jewish exiles to their homeland, right? It was the Lord who led Cyrus by the hand onto the stage of history. It was the Lord himself who fashioned his role and purpose that Cyrus was to fulfill, who engineered his triumphs, who, you know, made his progress easy and who enriched him with the earth's treasures. Okay? And that the Lord is behind all of this is made very evident by the the personal references God makes here to his actions, right? He is the one who grasps Cyrus's right hand in order to subdue nations before him and loose the belt of kings. That phrase, loose the belt of kings, that, that talks about stripping kings' weapons from them, right? It's the Lord that was the one who opened the doors and the gates so that they couldn't be closed. It was the Lord who said, I will go before you and level the exalted places. Making The idea there is it's, it's a picturesque term, meaning that, or a figurative term, meaning that the mountains and the obstacles you know, would be insignificant in his conquest. And I will break the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron, that all the walls and the protective features of all the nations that Cyrus conquered would be like nothing to him. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in the secret places. The Lord enriched Cyrus, like, I mean, beyond measure. Like, he was a rich, rich man. And a lot of the riches that he came into possession of happened to be the riches of Judah when Babylon had taken them off. When Nebuchadnezzar had taken them off to Babylon. Those riches, by the way, that he'll return to them, which is pretty, pretty cool. So the big question is, why does the Lord do all this? Right, why, why, why does the Lord do all this? You know, is it because he took a particular shine to Cyrus, you know, because of something in, that, that was found in Cyrus because he was such a good dude? Of course not, right? We know that's not true. So why does God do this? Why does he choose to act in this way with a pagan king for the benefit of his people and for the revelation of his glory to the entire world? Why does he do it this way? Well, first, he's God and he can do however he pleases. That's number one, right? But thank God he gives us three reasons here. He lays out three reasons that he used this pagan king in such a way. And the first one is found in the last half of verse 3. In fact, let's just read um, verses 3b through 6. Look at it again. God does all this with Cyrus so that you may know, he says, that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you. Though you do not know me, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, the pe- that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. See the three purposes there? So that Cyrus would know God and that he had called him by name. Number two, to benefit 
This, you know, the benefit his servant, Jacob, and his chosen Israel, right? And then third, so the whole world would know of his glory. Now, here's the question when we look at this, okay? Did all these things come to full fruition with Cyrus? And the answer is somewhat, but not completely. Somewhat, but not all the way. And that's where I want you to see the long game in all of this, okay? Let's think about Cyrus first. Okay, let's think about Cyrus first. God chose to use Cyrus in this way so that Cyrus would know that he was an instrument in the hands of God and that his success was only and exclusively the result of God's determined choice, predetermined choice, really, before he ever drew a breath, right? And his favor. Like the prophet Daniel, for instance, so plainly declares, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Cyrus, okay, Cyrus rose to his position of power simply because he had been especially chosen to carry out the purposes of God. And in that regard, He typifies the true Messiah, right? He typifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's chosen instrument to do great things, but only as it serves God's plan. With me? Now, did Cyrus understand that? Yeah, but not fully. Yeah, but not fully. We know that, first of all, because God says here, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I equip you, though you do not know me. Cyrus never came to a saving knowledge of the Lord. The word for know there is the Hebrew word yada, which means, which, which speaks of an intimate and an exclusive knowledge, like that between a husband and a wife, right? Cyrus never came to saving faith in the Lord, despite the favor that God showed him. Now, if you're a scholar, you might say, well, wait a minute, what about what he says there in Ezra? Well, it is true that in the book of Ezra, we read this proclamation by Cyrus. Ezra chapter 1, starting in verse 2, where he says this, Thus thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now that sounds like a full-throated endorsement of God, doesn't it? Until you dive a little deeper. Notice the contradictory or the... The equivocating statements here. The lack of exclusivity regarding the Lord as the one and only true God, right? He uses phrases like his people, right? And his God. And the God who is in Jerusalem, right? Cyrus had a typical pagan notion that a God was God only over his people and not the whole world. And that gods were generally regional. Now, some gods had bigger regions than others, right? But for the most part, they were all regional, right? But there's even more to this. 
an archaeological find called the Cyrus Cylinder. Okay? The Cyrus Cylinder that was found in Persia was a propaganda piece that was commissioned by Cyrus to celebrate his great victory over Babylon. Okay? And in that, it celebrates not Yahweh, God of Israel. It celebrates Marduk, who is, who is the Mesopotamian God. And praises him as being the reason for Cyrus's conquest. In fact, he's called the great God and the great Lord who graciously gave his blessing. But not only that, it actually celebrates Cyrus too. Saying that it was his virtues, his strength, and his leadership skills that caused Marduk to choose him for such an honor. So in reality, Marduk was the God in whom Cyrus believed and whom he worshipped. Now, just as Pharaoh, think about this, just as Pharaoh recognized the God of Israel as Lord, right, without ever coming to faith in him, it's the same thing with Cyrus. Cyrus acknowledged that he'd been commissioned by the God of Israel without ever surrendering him to the exclusive worship of the Lord. And so, here's what we see. Cyrus, for the moment, in the short game, is the anointed one of God, but he is not the anointed one. Of the Lord, right? That title belongs to Christ alone. Who is introduced to us, well not introduced to us, but who is described to us in Isaiah 42 in this way. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Right? Cyrus serves a near-term purpose in the plan of God. The true Messiah, he's the long game. The second purpose of God, right, for Cyrus, is that, that he would choose him for the sake of his servant Jacob and for Israel my chosen, he says. Now think about this. Cyrus does indeed himself personally benefit in a temporal way from God's choice of him. Is that not true? Well, of course he does, right? But the real blessing and benefit is for God's servant Jacob and, and for Israel his chosen, right? Now in a like manner, think about this. In the short term, all of Israel benefits from being released from the exile, whether they're faithful believers or not, right? They all benefit from being released from captivity to go and rebuild Jerusalem and lay the foundations of the temple, right? Israel gets restored as a nation, and that's a good thing, but that's not the end goal. It's not just that Israel be reconstituted as a nation. The end goal is that the nation be reconstituted so that in them would be a remnant of true believers, right? And that through the Davidic line, the true Messiah might come. So certainly it's a great blessing to be released from physical captivity, but the ultimate blessing is to be delivered from spiritual captivity, right? And God's plan of redemption requires the repatriation of the Jews and the reestablishment of the nation. The redemption of the nation from captivity is near term, right? But the redemption of God's chosen people from sin and death through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the true Messiah, is the long game, right? Paul writes about it. He says, Romans 3, starting verse 22, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified 
by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Yes and amen, right? But then he goes on. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. What former sins? The former sins of the Old Testament saints. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. So that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The repatriation of Israel, short term. The redemption of spiritual Israel. The actual act of redemption. Long game. And then the third purpose is found in these words. With these words. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Did the full exaltation of God's glory over the earth in that way happen through Cyrus? Again, the answer is eh, yes and no. Right? As we read in Ezra, Cyrus did indeed make a proclamation extolling the glories of the, of the one true God and one that would have gone forth to the nations that he conquered. But then again, he also, you know, has the Cyrus cylinder printed up that, that you know, celebrates Marduk. And so at best, his testimony was an uncertain sound, right? The fullness of these words were not accomplished through Cyrus. They await fulfillment. They awaited their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The writer of Hebrews picks this up. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Right? The Lord Jesus Christ is the final and full revelation of God to the world, right? His person, His words, and His words that, that He, you know, delivered to the apostles, right? Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And that revelation, you know, began in His incarnation. But that revelation's continuing today, isn't it? Isn't it? The revelation of, of God's true glory as the one true God is being unfolded in this world, continuing to this very day through the proclamation of the gospel, isn't it? Right? Of which Christ made his first disciples and now us witnesses. Right? So our declaring the glory of God is in complete keeping with the divine purpose that we read right here. Right? Some are being saved, others are continuing in rebellion, but through his church, the glory of God is being declared in all nations and under heaven that leads to the day when, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? Either in saving glad adoration or in divine subjugation. That's the end game. Right? Through Malachi, God said, From the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He hasn't rescinded that statement. Right? John Oswald, 
has some pretty good things to say about this. I just want you to follow with me. It's a, it's a little ponderous the way he, he speaks, but, but I just want you to listen to what he says. He says, what is condemning the world to its depressing round of human arrogance, oppression, and cruelty? It is a failure, failure to submit to and to acknowledge the truth. So long as we continue to make God in our image, so long as we continue to believe that we can ensure our own security and comfort by manipulating the psychosocial physical world without the surrender of our own autonomy, just so long we will continue in darkness, destruction, and despair. The cause of salvation is the self-revelation of God. Precisely because He is unlike anything else, we do not find Him for ourselves. He must disclose Himself to us. It is as persons acknowledge that they are not God, that God is totally other than they, and this world and everything in it, that they can finally abandon all the pretensions that, they have, that have been damning them, and in self-renunciation to God, receive the full salvation He has been offering all along. This is at the heart of Isaiah's and God's recurring insistence on Israel and the world's recognizing God's uniqueness. Until they and we have come to that understanding, it will be impossible for us to be redeemed. All this comes to its climax in the incarnation. It is as God is revealed to us in Christ and we abandon ourselves to him in faith that the revelation in that revelation that we find salvation this is also the sense in which Isaiah's prediction of this verse is fulfilled. It is because of Cyrus that an Israel survived through whom Christ should come for the salvation of the world. Already today, God's uniqueness is recognized by persons all around the world. Someday, because of Cyrus, every knee will bow to God in Christ. But here's the thing, right, beloved? Cyrus is not the one to be praised, is he? God is. Because he's the one who works all things for his purpose. And he makes it clear in verse 7. Look at it. I love this. There, there in verse 7, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now some people will rip that verse completely out of context and they'll try to make God the author of evil. That's not what's being said here. How are we to understand what the Lord says here? Well, here's what he's doing. God is asserting his absolute supremacy and his authority over everything that happens on this earth, right? That, that he's created. I want you to think about this with me. What is the first act that God accomplished when he ordered and formed the world? What's the first thing he did? He said what? Let there be light. And there was light. And he separated the light from the darkness, right? And he called the darkness night and he called the light day. Right? What's going on here is this. Most commentators, the vast majority of them, see that statement as the first fundamental act of God that declared that the universe belongs to him. Right? That it's subject to his will and that it responds to his word. Let there be light. And there was. It wasn't like, let there be light. I said, let there be light. Hey, let there be light. It wasn't like that, was it? But notice with me the tension here between light and darkness. Okay? They're opposites, right? They're, they're, they're exact opposites of one another, right? 
That helps us to understand the meaning of the second statement. I make well-being and I create, and I create calamity. Okay, so this is going to get a little technical, and then I'll bring it back around to the point of the statement. Just follow with me. The Lord's using something here called parallelism. Okay, parallelism. Now, why is that important? The reason that that's important is this, is that the relationship, you know, of the word translated as well-being to the word calamity is the same as that of light and darkness. They are opposites. Okay? They're opposites. Now, why is that important? Here's why. Because the word that's translated here as well-being is the familiar Hebrew word. Anybody want to guess? Shalom. Shalom. That's exactly right. It's the Hebrew word shalom, which always carries the idea of health, well-being, you know, peace, good relations, and blessing, right? That's the idea. Shalom, that's what that means, right? But the word that's translated here as calamity is the Hebrew word rah, which can change in meaning. It has various shades of meaning, okay? It can mean something that just tastes nasty, which, which again, can range in meaning from something that tastes nasty to, you know, like misfortune, like I had a bad day, or something that doesn't conform to your expectations, like I took that, man, but that's a bad road, right? Or to full-blown moral evil. And the way you understand which definition to use is the context, okay? So in this case, the parallelism provides for us the context. The parallelism provided by the first statement regarding light and darkness gives us the context. So what the Lord is describing here is this, that He is the author of well-being, but He is also the author of distress and difficult situations and trial and testing and unease in your heart. In other words, here's the picture, okay? Now, I'll just use myself as an example. If I face difficult situations in my life, those aren't happenstance, okay? And they're, and, they're, and they're not there because some evil God has thwarted the intentions of the kind but impotent grandfather God, you know, who would like me to have well-being but can't bring it about. Like that kind of yin and yang thing, all right? Rather... They're there as a result of my relationship to God. Those things might be there because I've sinned against His natural and His moral laws. Or they may be there in my life to draw me to repentance and faith you know, in, in, the, in the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. God used that in my life. Or they may be there to sanctify me and purify my faith so that the tested genuineness of my faith, right? More precious than gold that, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, they may be there for reasons that I can't understand right now. That I might not ever understand. But they're not there in spite of God. In the context of these verses, we're to see that if Israel is in the darkness and the trouble of the exile, it is solely because of the Lord's purpose. Therefore, it is to the Lord alone that Israel must look in order for the darkness to be turned to light and the trouble to be turned to spiritual well-being, to shalom, right? You following? Make sense? It was true of Israel and it's true of us. 
The point all along, the point is that all along, God had been using the hardship and the difficulties of trial and exile and captivity because of their own sin to bring Israel slash Judah back to him in repentance and faith and to magnify his glory as the God who keeps his word. God's got a purpose and all that he does so that his divine plan will come to fruition. And that's what lies behind verse 8. Look at it again. It's a description of the big picture. God's big picture purpose. The Lord says, shower of heavens from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it, right? Now this again, it's a, it's a description here. It's figurative, right? But what this echoes is the original creation commands of Genesis 1 that were marred by human sin, right? What's in view here now, in contrast to sin, is the salvation of God. The recreation of a righteous humanity. The earth giving sprout to a new people with a new heart. The ultimate spiritual fruit of God's intervention in Israel and Judah's sin and his choice of Cyrus as their liberator. It will all lead to the Messiah. It will lead to the Lord Jesus Christ and the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in awesome power in his person as Savior. And ultimately, it will lead not only to a new people, but a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where righteousness dwells, right? To the fulfillment of Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's the long game, right? That's the end game. And all of this will ultimately emerge from what Cyrus would do in accordance with God's sovereign will. The restoration of earthly Jerusalem would be only the first step, of course. But it is the first step in the Lord's eternal plan for the world. One step in the Lord's long game. So what do we do with this text? I'll tell you this, a couple things. One more one, this text ought to bolster and strengthen our faith in God. That's what it should do. It should bolster and strengthen our faith in God in a personal sense and in a corporate sense. Here's what, here's what he's getting at. Here's what the Lord is getting at, what Isaiah you know, recorded from God. God's got a purpose in all that he does. Nothing's random, right? Nothing. He's got a purpose. It's for our good and his glory. There's no random occurrences. There's no arbitrary accidents. There's no chance trials, right? Everything he does, all that he permits, is for a righteous purpose and for the salvation of his people for three main purposes, right? That we may know him for the sake of our spiritual good and so that the world may know that he is God and there is no other. And thinking about that, right? Helps to settle our souls in the days in which we live, doesn't it? Cammie, we were sitting at dinner last night and Cammie asked, she said, do you think we're in the last days? So, of course, I did the theological thing. I'm like, well, of course we're in the last days. We're in the last days since the, uh, you know, crucifixion, resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? I didn't say it like that, but 
But she, but I said that, you know, I, I just said that. And then she said, no, I mean the last days of the last days. Now, as an old man, I don't much care. <laughs> if these are the last days, the last days, bring it on. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. Right? Yeah, even, come, even so come Lord Jesus. But if you're a young person, that's kind of a, that's a legit question, right? Now, there's no way for us to know with certainty. But we don't have any need to be shaken either. Jesus described the sign of His coming and the end of, his, of the days in this way. Look at it, Matthew 24, and starting in verse 4. Starting in verse 4. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Are we there yet? I don't know. It does seem that way, right? Of course, every generation that's been before us of Christians has believed they were in the very last days of the last days. But it does seem that I don't know for sure. But certainly what Christ describes here is ramping up, and we're seeing it more and more. But not only in our nation, we're seeing it around the world, right? We can be sure of this, though. None of it will take God by surprise. Because He's ordained it all. It'll come to pass in accordance with His irresistible will. And our job, as clearly defined by the Lord Jesus Christ right here, is very clear. Refuse to be led away to a false Savior. Stand firm in your faith and do not be alarmed. Continue to love your neighbor. Remain steadfast in your love to God and endure to the end. And the good news is this. If we're in Christ, we will. Because God does not renege on His promises. And He does not let a single word of His fall to the ground unfulfilled. Let's pray. John, will you pray, please? And then I want to sing all as well. Father God, what a comfort it is to be able to sing as believers, it is well with my soul. And the reason we can sing that is not because of anything we have done ourselves. It's not because of anything we've merited. It's not because we naturally desire to obey you and please you. God, we... 
Our response did not originate with us. None of this originates with us. We are just sinners. We are fallen. And by nature, apart from your effectual grace, God, we are destined for hell. But what comfort there is in the fact that you have accomplished our salvation for us and you uphold it. We don't uphold it. You uphold it. You preserve us and cause us to persevere. So God, I thank you for this message that we heard tonight. And what we closed on, Lord, talking about the consummation. We see your face, Lord, when we meet you face to face. That should fill us with all the fuel that we need to strive after you, to have the heart Lord Jesus, come. Lord, we should have the mindset and the heart to make straight a pathway for you. Yeah. So Lord, I just thank you for this message. You can do mighty things. You do mighty things. You've displayed your sovereignty and control over everything. God, and you... The only sacrifice you delight in is a humble and contrite spirit and heart. Yeah. So God, I pray that you would give that to us. Because then again, we can't muster that up within ourselves. It's a gift from your hand. So God, I thank you for this time. I pray that it would be beneficial or that it was honoring in your sight. And as we get ready to sing this last song, that we would pay attention to the words. It wouldn't be about the music, the way it sounds. It wouldn't be anything like that. But Lord, we would realize that we are singing to you, our King. Amen. Lord, so I pray that as we lift our hearts up to you and as we lift our voices... Lord, that you would find it pleasing, that you would bless us through it. Thank you again for this time. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.